Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Last week, we talked about one of the central myths of American slavery, and even white feminism, that white women weren't as invested in the institution as their male counterparts. This week, we're exploring another little advertised side of American history, how photography transformed the abolitionist movement to end slavery, and in particular, how a photograph of one seven-year-old girl was used to gain a white audience's sympathy. Jesse Morgan Owens, a photographer and a historian, has written a book about that little girl, Mary Mildred Williams. It's called Girl in Black and White. Black and white because of the photography used, and black and white because Mary looks white, but she was actually born into slavery. Senator Charles Sumner, prominent Massachusetts abolitionist of the day, saw a huge political opportunity in her story. And how he used her tells us not only about the politics of the 19th century, but also about our own. Jesse Morgan Owens joins us in the studio. Thanks for chatting with me. Thank you. So I want you to start off by telling me a little bit about Mary Mildred Williams and who she was and how you first encountered her story. Sure. Um, So Mary Mildred Williams, I'm calling the first poster child um, because uh, she was used in the anti-slavery movement in the 1850s as an argument against slavery. Um, Her photograph was circulated and then she herself um, was on stage with Solomon Northrup and Charles Sumner and Dr. John Rock um, as a living, breathing indicator of what was wrong with slavery. Um, In that time, one of the things they were working on was the idea of white slave propaganda or challenging the borders of racialized slavery, the system of slavery's basis in race. So she's a part of that story. And um, and I think I first came across her because I was working on a dissertation on anti-slavery rhetoric and photography. So I'm a, I, I'm fascinated with photography and interested in knowing more about how um, photographs were used in the first generation. I was looking into all the abolitionist writing, and I was motivated by Frederick Douglass's speeches on photography in the 1860s, which said that photography is ubiquitous, and it's everywhere, and we're going to use it. To my good luck, the um, optical character recognition technology was picking up speed at that time, uh, making it possible for me to search things like daguerreotype and slavery and see what came up. Um, And Charles Sumner's article came up, um, and it was a a letter that he'd written in 1855. 
1995 to Dr. Stone. He was planning on doing a speech in Boston with Dr. Stone's lecture series about a little girl named Mary, who's, he says, her presence alone will be more effective than any speech I could make. And Charles Sumner is a very arrogant man. So I knew that that's not exactly what he meant. There must be something more to that story. Um, And he gave us two hints. It was, um, her name is Mary, which is not useful. Um, There are a lot of Marys in slavery in Virginia at that time. Um, But also, he also said she was another Ida May. And Ida May was the title character of a a best-selling sentimental fiction um, of the time, which was about a little girl who gets kidnapped and sold into slavery. So here is this story that mimics another story, and he uses it sort of like, uh, he uses Mary as a stand-in for Ida May. Yeah, and I want to sort of dig in a little bit deeper into Senator Charles Sumner's role in all this, because Mm -hmm. he was a leading abolitionist, and he did help in freeing her, but he also really wanted to use her, as you say, you know, on stage as a prop for Mm -hmm. his piece um, and for his, you know, political purpose. So can you sketch an outline of what the abolitionist movement looked like at the time, so mid-1950s, pre-Civil War, Mm -hmm. um, and how you saw her fitting into that, how another Ida May would be useful? Great. Oh, my goodness. That's a huge question. Um, I think so. You know, 1854 was a not a great year for the anti-slavery movement. It was the beginning of the splintering of the Free Soil Party, which had some legs to it. Um, It was the beginning of the Republican ascendancy, but not enough people had come on board. The Liberty Party had been coalescing and failing. And a lot of the reason why we didn't have a strong political movement in in representation in Washington is in part due to the fact that a lot of abolitionists felt like politics had no place in the anti-slavery movement due to the fact that most American um, founders, the founders of the Constitution, and many of the members of Congress were slaveholders. And so no union with slaveholders was one of the tenets of Garrisonian abolitionism, which was the predominant mode of abolitionism in Boston at that time. So Sumner was kind of going against the grain in that way. And he wasn't the only person who was doing so, But it was one of the things that Sumner, I think, brought to the movement was a senatorial legislative approach to anti-slavery. But that didn't mean that he wasn't also behind the scenes working for the Vigilance Committee, as were many of the people in the movement in Beacon Hill at that time in Boston. The Vigilance Committee had about 35 men who were lawyers working, as well as a vast membership of people of all walks of life who were working to protect the fugitives in Boston from recapture. And they were a a pretty effective crew. Um, And for many years after the fugitive slave law, they were able to stymie most of the slave catchers from picking out fugitive slaves from Boston. So when Sumner joins the Vigilance Committee, he does so as a lawyer. And part of the reason he does so is to make sure that he can have a hand in all the fugitive workings in Boston. Um, And one of the things that happens in 1854 is that Anthony Burns is picked up in the streets of Boston. And he they no matter what they try, they can't keep him from going back to slavery in Virginia. And There were attempts in the courtrooms. There were attempts in the streets. There was 50,000 people coalescing on the street to try and block his passage to the boat. They couldn't stop him on the streets, so they filled the harbor full of boats to try and stop the steamship from leaving. And my mom loves this story because she's like, can you imagine in, in the age before Twitter, like 
they were able to get 50,000 people out on the streets to save this one man. And the federal government sent 200 troops to, to get this one man back to slavery because it was a symbol. It was a, a symbolic moment. And the abolitionists lost that round. Um, so I think for Sumner at this moment, he's looking for icons He's looking for people that folks can rally around, and he's looking for sentimental heroes that people can really attach themselves to. And I think when Mary appears, he didn't know who she was beforehand, um, and she appears on the scene as a sort of argument against slavery that fell in line with some of the white slave propaganda that was extremely popular at the time. It's all over Uncle Tom's Cabin and Richard Hildreth's books. And, you know, it's just a it's a part of the way that sympathy worked in the 19th century and today that resemblance is a key part of the story. Well, I mean, let's talk about resemblance. So okay. let's talk about Mary's appearance. When you look at the daguerreotype, even today, it's on the cover of your book. She looks just like a middle class white girl mm-hmm. from a good family in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And yet she's not. She was born into slavery. Mm-hmm. And then she went through this arduous journey to get out of it and get to the North with her family. So how does her picture challenge the ideas of slavery? Um, Great question. So as I mean, as everyone knows, I guess, um, at the time, slavery was uh, bounded by race. And there was a lot of policing of the boundaries of what was white in order to make sure that it was clear who could be conscripted into slavery. And part of What the um, enslavement by race meant was more and more complicated codes around who was and was not a slave um, had to be developed. Um, So as white supremacy becomes a sort of law of the land in the United States, we started developing a a whole set of codes and laws to protect that whiteness. Um, And so with Mary, what her picture has the potential to do is to sort of rattle the understanding of us versus them. Um, I'm speaking, I'm saying, when I'm saying us, I feel like, because this is radio, I'm a white woman. My family has been in you know, Louisiana for seven generations. So we're coming from the side that was working very hard to say, this, is, this person would not pass the one drop rule, for example. And hypodescent, which is the the theory that you um, that your race is descended from the minority descent um, and not the majority descent, meant that even though Mary was the fourth generation of her family who could present as white, the fourth generation of her of women in her family who had been sexually enslaved, so she herself is coming to the table, I think, as a symbol of two things: one, that race is a very ambiguous and unstable sort of structure on which to build an entire economic system and society. And on the other, she's also saying to the people of Boston and to the people that she's presented to that the people who were enslaving these black women and having sex with them, their sexual desire was for an other that they said that they don't believe in. So it's like this weird thing about white desire and white sexual enslavement to say this little girl is someone who would grow up to be desired. And she's also just physical evidence of generations of sexual violence. Yeah. You know, which you can't hide when you have a girl who looks as pale as paper. Yeah. Yeah. She really does. They, I think, also felt like she reached out sympathetically to people 
in a way that like, say, for example, her brother did not. Um, And part of the reason that I think that this is interesting is because it really plays on so many different levels with our expectations. It's, um, you know, it's there's a philosophical concept um, from Levinas called totalization in which, you know, we decide right away who is other and what categories they belong into. And I've seen hundreds of people regard Mary's picture for the first time, and they're almost always surprised to learn that she was enslaved, which I think says volumes about how our story about what was slavery has been colored throughout history, even to today, that we still understand race and slavery to be somehow inextricably bound when that was just something that was constructed for, I mean, economic purposes. Right, right. And it will, it tells you something, too, about how desperate times were for anti-slavery forces right before the Civil War that the argument they thought would be most compelling was appealing to white people's fears about being in bondage, about their Mm -hmm. kids being stolen, and Mm -hmm. that you had to literally hold up a photo and say, see, slaves, they're just like us. Yeah. There's a lot there. I mean, you really just put Mm -hmm. your finger on it because it's like, in a certain point, the story should have been that there's thousands of children in slavery already um, that could have been chosen for this photo. Um, But the fact that it's Mary says so much about what sort of what I call in the book is the myopic um, nature of white sympathy, that we have a tendency to be quite nearsighted about what we're interested in knowing about and what is used to appeal to us. Um, And I think, you know, I think this is something that I, I've dealt with a lot as a photographer and also as an activist, seeing some of the same narratives of pity and white saviorism and colorism and, you know, looking at pictures of poster children that have, are given to us, like, we are being asked as white progressives to consume images that have the same motivation as this one in some ways. Um, I remember early on in the project when I first was speaking with my agent about it and trying to explain how I wanted to position it as something that was about now and then, um, he pointed out to me that just on that same day on the cover of the New York Times was a picture of a Syrian girl looking away from the camera down some dark road and it was clearly intended to pull at our heartstrings and she could have also, you know, she's got a ponytail and she's wearing American fashions and it's very much saying like this Syrian girl is just like your girl so you should care, you know. Right. So what are what are we finding out? Yeah. yeah. Or I mean look at Oscar winners. <laughs> yeah. Like Green Book. <laughs> exactly. Well, yes, yes. Um, so what's interesting is that photography and abolition sort of had their stars ascending at the same time. Mm-hmm. So photography was introduced to the U.S. in 1839, and then mm-hmm. Mary's daguerreotype is from 1855. Mm-hmm. And the abolitionist movement is growing rapidly in about the same period. Mm-hmm. So What do you see as the relationship between the two? Yeah, that's something I think a lot about. I think one of the things that's really interesting to me is how easy it is for us to forget how potent and exciting photography was for antebellum audiences because it's so ubiquitous in our world today. Um, How important photography was to changing the way that we see the world. Um, As a photographer, I know that like I can say, see this, look at this. And you will see what I see, and you'll see it in the way that I see it, in the way that I want you to see it. So I can choose to photograph something in such a way as to make it look the way I want you to read it. 
And that's me taking the world and recrafting it for an argument. And that's something that's political from the very beginning. Um, photography was political from day one. And in this photograph, for example, Sumner didn't just have a photograph made of her. There were other photographs made later of white children as part of white slave propaganda that are much more garish in style. This is a very quiet image that is purposefully middle class or upper middle class. Daguerreotypy is a technology on the wane, so it's fancy. They get her, you know, beautifully photographed in this very solemn fashion because they want you to see something specific in the image. Um, and I, so I think photography is just fascinating because we believe what we see and seeing is believing is something that's always been a part of the way that epistemology works. But on the other hand, photography is also something that is created. It's a tool that we use to show certain things and exclude other things. Um, and so abolitionists saw this from the get-go. And there were some photographers within the abolition movement but I think more specifically, there were abolitionists who were using photography and in, in implementing it in interesting ways. Somebody who doesn't get talked about enough is William Cooper Nell, um, who's an activist for education in Boston. And he's was looking into um, how to bring crystallotypes to the anti-slavery movement because folks were looking for pictures. Um, we talk a lot about Sojourner Truth and her implementation of photography. Um, she took pictures of herself to show who she was. And um, Zoe Trod is a scholar that I've had the opportunity to cross paths with a few times. She's found that Frederick Douglass was the most photographed person in the 19th century. Um, and he wrote some really powerful writing about photography as a theorist um, in the 1860s. So we are unable to extricate anti-slavery from photography at this moment. And when I first started my project, it was considered not true that anti-slavery and photography were connected in any way. There was a lot of talk about photography as starting its documentary and photojournalistic and persuasive propagandistic roles in the 1880s and later after the halftone process and newspapers started to use photographs. Um, I think that that's generally been debunked now. It's now a commonplace to understand photography as having this long prehistory in politics. But when I first started the project, I felt like I was always trying to pitch this idea, like, no, seriously, photography was always political. There was never a moment where people are like, ooh, it's so neutral, you know. They didn't, I don't think people realize how, like, ideology just doesn't work that way, right. you know. It's, yeah. it's always there from the very beginning. Pictures or it didn't happen, as the kids say, but yeah. just because you have <laughs> pictures doesn't mean it did happen. <laughs> um, obviously, that's a very crude summary of of two centuries worth of theorizing about photography. Yes. Um, but it, it is so interesting that it wasn't seen as political. Because if you look at, you know, there's a really famous photograph that ran in Harper's, right, mm -hmm. of the the slave with the, like, awful webbing of the scars, scars on garden. his back. Yeah. yeah. Was that before 1880? It was. It was in the 1860s. Uh -huh. Yeah. And still, that wasn't That's photojournalism, <laughs> apparently. Um, and I think there's this attitude, and I think photojournalism is an important part of the story, right? Mm -hmm. um, Harper's Weekly and some of the work from the Civil War was really the beginning of, of real on-the-ground photography as a form of journalism. And, you know, um, whether or not journalism is, is objective is maybe a story for another podcast. <laughs> um, but that that photograph really did touch off, I think, a lot of conversations. 
we concern ourselves with how Mary demonstrates violence in terms of sexual violence or potential sexual violence, past sexual violence. Um, Gordon's photograph shows us a different kind of violence. um, And that was a more common form of propaganda and sentimental writing does a lot of whippings and so forth. There's a somewhat ghastly nature to anti-slavery writing that the photograph of Private Gordon illustrates beautifully. Um, and it, it's a it's a similar concept. It's like, here's the worst thing you can see and you can never unsee. Right. And hopefully it will convince you that this is something necessary that must be done. Yeah. Well, by contrast, you know, Mary's photograph is much more tame, as you said earlier. So it's mm-hmm. they were really trying every angle possible. Yeah. <laughs> to use a photography metaphor. Yes. <laughs> One of the things that I learned in the making of this project is that abolitionist heroes were imperfect human beings, which I don't know why I didn't think that was true. Um, But I did feel like I think one of the things that we inherit from the 19th century is a tattered history that's not entirely clear um, about what we've preserved from these men. And a lot of the 19th century were men talking to other men about things that were of interest to them. And thankfully, Mary was interesting to them for a moment, so we could write this story. But there was the imperfectness of the way that they saw other people has been encoded into the histories that they wrote and the things they preserved and the things that made it into the magazines and journals and history books and that kind of mixed motives that I saw so clearly in the writing once I got down past all of the biographies and the economiums and the beautiful statues and busts and got down to the brass tacks. You really saw that these people were quite prejudiced, even though they were willing to put like their lives on the line for ending slavery. They truly put everything out there. They still had a great deal of bias in the way that they position themselves and others in the world. It's kind of a a feat of extraordinary uh, self-centering and, and as they say, white-centering to put a white girl as the poster child for American anti-slavery. Right. Well, I mean, I think it's telling, too, that she was useful for a time and then she was sort of laid aside and her story wasn't really known Mm -hmm. until you started digging into it. And we really don't even know that much about her life besides the facts that were useful to Sumner and the abolitionists in their propaganda. Yeah, that silence really uh, haunts me. Um, I think it's it's hard to work on something for this long and not achieve your goal. My goal was completeness. My goal was to get past all the whitewashing and the flattening that happens when you become a poster child and actually find out about that person and the subject, to put the subject first. Um, and Roland Barth writes that you can have three stances around a photograph. You can do it. You can be the photographer. You can undergo it. You can be the subject. Or you can look at a photograph. That's really the only three available stances around a photograph. And we spent so much time thinking about who the audience for the picture was for Mary. And I spent so much time thinking about why Sumner made it or why Vanerson put the picture the way he did. And the photographer is a big part of the story. But Mary is just in the photo, locked away. They just took a picture of her and then threw away the key. And she was a spectacle and no one asked her anything about anything. And no one wrote it down. No one thought, you know, this is this is fascinating child must have something interesting to say. They say she's brilliant and I believe them, but I don't know anything else about her interiority. 
And the book ends on a note of silence, not to give away the ending. But um, I don't have any words from her. I have five words from her brother. And um, I have some ventriloquized or quoted words from her father. But in the end, um, Mary is a, is a silent figure in the archive. For more on Mary Mildred Williams' story, including a reconstruction of her family's harrowing history, check out Jesse Morgan Owens' new book, Girl in Black and White. There is a whole genre of critical theory devoted to photography, some of which Jesse alluded to in the episode. So we've got links to key texts in the show notes. Frederick Douglass, Roland Bart, W.J.T. Mitchell. There is so much to dive into. It'll definitely keep you entertained until next week, when we're back with something completely different, although equally timely. The incredible story of how an English plant hunter saved Japan's cherry blossoms and changed the face of spring, which, as of this week, it officially is. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.